Blog Talk Radio. Sweeping those streets I used to roam and perhaps own. This is Greg Masters. You're listening to This Week in Accountable Care. This is a periodic radio show we do here in the midst of some other productions. And today we're going to have a real treat for you. Uh, We get to have actually a twofer from one of my guests. That would be Michael Millinson. But you're going to get the introduction to Dr. Leslie Kernison. Now let me tell you uh, a little bit about both before I kick it over. But first up... Let me give you context uh, for how this chat, uh, it, it, uh, the genesis of this chat, if you will. Uh, we were uh, all at the Health 2.0 Silicon Valley session down in the Santa Clara Valley here last week. And uh, while we didn't drill into this conversation necessarily, it followed on somewhat from that uh, event in Twitter, where um, as the... Um, Host of this show in the blog ACO Watch, I, I write a lot and defend, find myself in defending a lot ACOs. And there was a comment about ACOs, and and uh, I, 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 Dr. Kernison uh, spoke up and said something. Yeah, but you know what difference is it really going to make in grandma's care? So we're going to dive a little deeper into that subject today, both from the granularity of of a clinician's perspective as well as maybe more of the global health wonk, health policy and quality perspective. So first up, let me tell you about uh, Leslie. She's a practicing geriatrician in San Francisco with a particular interest in helping family caregivers. She authors the blog Geritech, uh, whereas Michael is a quality health author, blogger, and activist who writes from the perspective of health policy and you can find his work at millinson.com. That's M-I-L-L-E-N-S-O-N. And the Jerry Tech blog is at, let me get this right, it is jerrytech.org. So with that as a, a general introduction, uh, Leslie, let me ask you to just uh, say a little bit more about you and your background. And uh, did I get anything wrong? Uh, no, no, I uh, didn't get anything wrong. Thank you, Greg, for um, inviting me to speak on the show. So, uh, yes, I am a practicing uh, geriatrician and general internist, but I actually have um, a small uh, quality um, and healthcare leadership background myself. Um, I have a long-standing interest in the question of how do we improve primary care, and when I was a resident, that turned into primary care for adults with multiple medical conditions. And then that became geriatrics because somebody pointed out to me that those were uh, the patients who most needed really good, comprehensive, person-centered care. And so as I was thinking, well, you know, how can we make primary care better for um, for older adults, especially when they start developing the complications of aging like dementia or multiple conditions intersecting, Uh, I decided to do a research fellowship um, at UCSF, where I did my clinical training. And so I actually did a fellowship in quality improvement based at the San Francisco VA and um, and wrote a paper on quality measures. And I was there researching quality measures, and then I discovered a website for boomers worrying about aging parents. 
and that was my first foray into e-health and realizing there was this whole world of online health information. And I thought, holy cow, we could teach geriatrics to caregivers and maybe improve geriatric care by empowering and activating and supporting the caregivers who are really a core part of the healthcare team when it comes to the care of frail older um, adults. And um, so I did a Master's of Public Health that focused a little bit on health education. And, um, and then I decided to not stay at UCSF in a faculty track. And I started working at a federally qualified health center for older adults. And so I was there seeing patients as a provider. And it's kind of a fee-for-service environment, even though the providers are um, salaried. And they had also asked me to help implement quality improvements and help implement a new electronic record system, and we were trying to change other things, and then I became uh, the medical director for nine months. And so it was really instructive to have this experience both of learning a bit about quality and then really trying to implement it on the ground in a community fee-for-service um, setting. And, uh, and I ended up leaving that job because it was um, – I burned out, honestly. Uh, I had uh, – uh, I became the medical director shortly after I had my second child, and um, and I was still working at the website, writing content for caregivers one day a week, and it was just a little too much. So um, so for the past year, I've I've been on my own. I have a small practice doing geriatric consultations, and I've focused really on writing about how technology can make geriatric care better and how we can just make geriatric care more doable. And I think a lot about that frontline environment and how it works for the patients, the caregivers, and the regular clinicians, because ultimately great care for frail older patients has to be delivered by non-geriatricians. Um, so obviously, reimbursement, how we design primary care, um, and the sort of underpinning uh, quality measures and ACOs and other structures um, that shape the frontline experience are really important. So I've uh, I've been following the ACO story with uh, interest. Um, I do write commentary on geriatrics um, for Geriatech, and um, and it comes out on the healthcare blog and Kevin MD. And then I still you know write a little bit um, for caregivers directly and enjoy doing that. So. Well, that, that's that's great, Leslie. It's fabulous background and just totally appropriate touch points for the conversation today. So, Michael, let me bring you in. For those who may not be familiar with Michael Millinson and what you do, tell us a little bit about uh, from where you hail and uh, what uh, what you write about. Well, I'm I'm not a clinician, but uh, I've been immersed in in that world. Um, I've uh, been writing, speaking, and consulting about quality of care measurement and management and improvement and patient empowerment um, for uh, close to 20 years now and had a book that came out uh, with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation grant in 1997 called Demanding Medical Excellence, Doctors and Accountability in the Information Age and just wrote uh, uh, an update on sort of what's been happening since then uh, for the healthcare blog and for uh, the policy journal Health Affairs. And, and really my interest is how do we use information to make healthcare something that physicians can measure and manage better and that patients can do the same and work in collaboration. So uh, I'm, I'm very much, a, I call myself a quality of care evangelical uh, for uh, better care, better information, and really a, a patient 
physician partnership, which is a, a, a phrase that, that, that I like a lot. Uh, I think uh, what Dr. Curtis is doing is, is, is very important because the people who are sick the most and the sickest the most are folks who are older. And while it's important to have quality improvement and patient empowerment for everyone, it's even more important for people who are older, for themselves or for their families or caregivers, to be involved in in, in the process of care and in a humane kind of care, really. So I think that, that I come to the discussion of accountable care organizations with that background. And, and, and I think before we go into the substance, although there's a lot of jargon to do with the terrible name accountable care organization, just like patient-centered medical home sounds like a nursing home, um, it's important to know that the origins of this were from the people at Dartmouth uh, who were involved with health policy would really come out of an environment where they saw patients getting widespread variations in care without any reason, without any medical uh, purpose, without any medical evidence, without anything other than doctor's preferences. And so the origins of accountable care organizations go back really to the idea that, that burbled up in the 1980s that we needed to have a better organized system of care. That's a tough sell sometimes to patients and to doctors as well, but, but, but patients who believe that if I just get the right doctor, my doctor is really smart. And, you know, if, if I go to Dr. Kernison, I don't need any sort of a organized system because she'll take care of everything. And perhaps, but even the best doctors need a system that supports them in what they want to do for their patients. And and that's really where I come at this, for how can we build a system that supports good clinicians and supports patients in getting the best care. So, uh, let, so Leslie, let me ask you this. Are, are, you, are you able to be the integrator and manager of that ecosystem to where you actually take care of everything? Uh, no. Uh, definitely not. I couldn't. Uh, I'm I'm a a systems um, junkie and believer, and I certainly um, agree with Michael that um, the best care comes from being embedded in good systems. And I tell patients and families this often that you know look for a clinic and a place to get care that has a good system. And um, so what what uh, what I do. And what I think about scaling up so that all, you know, older patients can have it is um, I do the quarterbacking of the care. And I really think of myself as um, a consultant for the patient and family to help them figure out how we can use uh, my health expertise and, you know, our expertise as healthcare providers overall to help them with their health needs. And so um, I think there's a crucial role for the primary care doctors of these older patients to help patients navigate the complexities of the medical conditions that they're facing, um, the various uh, uh, both acute crises and then sort of slow crises of decline that um, come on with aging, and to help them really individualize a course of care. And everybody deserves and should have medical care that is tailored to their preferences and values. But it becomes especially important with these older patients because basically there there is no clear path because once you have more than a few conditions intersecting, 
there's no uh, there's often no evidence. Um, it's been shown in a JAMA paper that if you take an older person who has a collection of commonly coexisting conditions, I forget how many it was, it was like six or something. This is a paper by Cynthia Boyd uh, that was published in JAMA in 2005. But if you try to follow guidelines for each of those conditions, you end up with something that is impossible um, for the patient. And so the, the older patients are especially at risk of not having their needs met if somebody doesn't take that role of helping them synthesize and really helping them prioritize. I mean, since you can't pursue ideal care for everything they have going on, it's especially important to sit with them and help them figure out, well, which of these is affecting your life the most right now or do we think will affect you the most over the next year or two? Do you know which of so, those so approaches Leslie, seems feasible? You know, I, I have an elderly father who went, yeah. is in concierge medicine, and his first concierge doctor, who you would have thought would have been a quarterback, uh, like you describe, was more like a quarterback whose job it is to hand off the ball. Uh, and uh-huh. and concierge, concierge medicine meant that uh, the phone is answered on the first ring as opposed to in the regular office, and there's bottled water and little pieces of cake uh, available, and you get all the time with the doctor but it also meant, you know what, if you have a complaint, I'm going to refer you to a specialist quickly, and you'll get in quickly. So you'll get this scan and that scan and this, that, and the other thing. And when he uh, was exactly what, what you're talking about, deteriorating kind of a condition and all the rest of that kind of thing, no coordination for home care, no sort of real help in, in you know, what do you do about rehab, nothing like that. It was more, um, it was more kind of, I get you to specialist quickly. And I think that when you look at what the accountable care organizations are required to do by the the, the rules uh, that Medicare put out, it's kind of to turn the doctor that my father had, who undoubtedly thought he was a great doctor and worth every extra penny, into the kind of doctor that you are and and already practice, where you're practicing person-centered medicine. Um, That is not as common as you might hope. Uh. Yeah, no, I I think that's true, and that you know, and and I actually don't consider myself, uh, even though my specialized practice right now, I'm unfortunately not able to accept Medicare. I don't consider myself a concierge um, doctor because uh, I don't sort of do all the little extra frills, and and I'm not available 24/7. But I do take no, no, bo- no bottled water, no bottled water, no bottled water. <laughs> um, but. Uh, <laughs> Um, well, and, and, and to be fair, by the way, this, this, this doctor, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this, this doctor, apart from the yearly fee, by the way, as you know, there, are, I'm not going to name the franchise, but there are franchises of concierge medicine that give you, like, you know, I all know. the little things. To, so, so this is a franchise, uh, a concierge doctor. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Can, can I can I speak in because this whole um, you know context is king and it, it's so vitally important listening to Leslie in terms of this, you know, having this quarterback relationship to an ecosystem of of suppliers, providers, and the demand by patients. And it's one thing maybe to be in, in a pure play, direct practice, in some cases might be called high-end concierge medicine or membership medicine like Q-Lions and others, which is not an elite thing, but it's a prepayment for primary care services where you're, there's an expectation that there's some coordination that goes on. But if you're sitting in a federally qualified health center or Kaiser, as an example, or an emerging ACO between Banner Health 
and U.S. Healthcare, um, excuse me, Banner Health and Aetna, U.S. Healthcare, that's a slip of the tongue. Um, how, how much ability do you really have to influence that vision versus maybe being in essentially a one-off direct practice where you're an advocate and you're working with a leveraged network of caregivers. I mean, isn't context really the driver here, or do you have that kind of ability to influence the the environment? Well, I mean, I think, you know, um, uh, I don't want to talk too – I don't think my practice is um, necessarily a, a model for what all of geriatric care should be, although it's interesting to think how would care change if patients could use some of their insurance money to get – a second opinion or kind of hire their own, you know, quarterback. Um, you know, that, that that's potentially an intriguing um, idea. But I want to come back to Kaiser. I'm glad you brought up Kaiser because one of the things that I've often thought about is um, I think part of what I do in my practice is sort of uh, is sort of try to practice this ideal quarterbacking and tailoring of care for the families and then think, you know, how do we make this doable in other settings? And um, so uh, so I do think that this kind of uh, care gets patients care that is more person-centered, more patient-centered, and often for the older patients more cost-effective in that many of them, once they're given um, permission and once they clearly see uh, the benefits and burdens of various options, many of them decide to forego um, more expensive care. Um, so, so I think it can be cost effective, and there's certainly lots of research demonstrating that um, in a, you know at the sort of uh, country level or, or or higher level, places that have more primary care uh, tend to get better outcomes, um, you know, for the cost spent. So, um, but in terms of the accountable care organization, one of the things that I keep getting a little bit stuck on is that if we're going to move to accountable care organizations, it seems to me that Kaiser is kind of the ultimate accountable care organization. We have it here. And in many ways, it's a great system. I admire it enormously. And I do actually sometimes recommend to people that they consider Kaiser because, as we were saying earlier, it's such a solid system in many ways. And there are a lot of benefits to that that patients don't initially appreciate because they're there looking for the ideal doctor with the ideal credentials. And at the same time, uh, even though Kaiser gets uh, uh, offers great value for the group, um, I feel like many uh, patients um, do not feel like they get the most patient-centered or person-centered experience. And Kaiser certainly has not chosen to give it to primary care doctors uh, more time to, um, you know, do, uh, to have a sort of uh, more collaborative experience with the patients and families. So I'm kind of, uh, you know, sort of well, so, uh, so interested in hearing Michael's uh, thoughts on on uh, how we can expect ACOs to, uh, to do better and what's going to be the underlying motivators and drivers for them to do better on so, this so, I, I would agree with you completely about Kaiser. As, as, as you know, uh, I'm sure the, sort of the, uh, the, the rubric about Kaiser, it's a great place to be well and it's a great place to be very sick. It's in between that it's tough and, mm -hmm. and to, to get the kind of care. You know, so if it's really something intense, people take care of it. It's, it's the in-between. And, and, and they do not have a, uh, 
a, uh, a reputation for being uh, person-centered, even though they're working on it. They're doing a lot of things to try to to try to change that. So, what makes the ACOs different? So, so first, to to be clear, there are a lot of different flavors of ACOs, as Greg started off uh, talking, and and there are a lot of ones that are not connected with the Medicare program, and therefore uh, they are whatever the insurance company and the uh, medical group uh, getting it together decide that they are. If you look at the Medicare ACOs, which uh, are you know sort of the model, and if you look at the regulations, there are a, a series of specific provisions in the rule that talk about what needs to be done to be person-centered, both at the boardroom level, that is having a representative of patients on on the uh, on the board of the ACO and no it can't be a retired doctor or hospital executive at the next level down in terms of clinical policies and then at the level of clinician patient interaction and there are things that talk about being sensitive to gender and race about shared decision making about communication via medical uh, record uh, uh, collaboration and a whole host of other things there are measures of patient experience and patient satisfaction um, and and to some extent you could say yeah this is over specified and and all the rest but what it's really doing is establishing a culture in which being patient-centered is something other than simply, well, we listen well to preferences and values, and has to do with collaboration on care. Uh, there's something that says that evidence-based medicine should be practiced in a way that's patient-centered and open to patients, communicated about. And really what, what they're trying to do is is to change the culture. If If our friends at Kaiser... Uh, looked at those regulations, and I don't think Kaiser is a Medicare ACO, and just clipped out that part about patient-centeredness, and 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 put that into their into their operating uh, uh, environment. Even though they're good, I think they would they would be better. And and I think I think that having specifics about what patient-centeredness means, other than aspirational kinds of things is what has the potential, if it's implemented right, to make ACOs different. So that's, that's kind of my optimistic take on having things that are granular as opposed to these soaring statements about aspirations and values. Um, yeah, no, that's helpful. I don't know that I um, had quite realized that all those um – that all that had been written into ACOs. And then, you know, the thing that it makes me think of a little bit is uh, is meaningful use, you know. Right, <laughs> Which, exactly. In a way, I think, was sort of similarly intentioned that, you know, um, uh, that this is, you know, one of the challenges of, of uh, quality and management is that, you know, we have to figure out how to articulate specific things that we can follow and measure to assess whether um, – you know whether uh, something is working the way we want it to, or having the effect and the outcomes so, so, um, so that we great, want it to. Uh, and is, right, uh, it's a it's a great analogy, Leslie. And I, I would I would go to the Dear Abby question. And, and the Dear Abby question is when someone would write in and saying, you know, my my husband is this, that, and the other thing. What should I do? And she would say, Are you better off with him or without him? And, and and I think that's the test to apply to meaningful use and to the ACO regs on patient-centeredness. And so 
have the meaningful use regs sometimes been a uh, uh, a muddled kind of thing that everybody is uh, unhappy with? Sure. But if you look at what happened before we had the HITECH Act and meaningful use, you had evidence in the medical literature on uh, computerized physician order entry preventing uh, adverse drug events for years and years. You had the leapfrog group pleading with people to adopt it, and nobody did it. Meaningful use comes in, and the rate triples in about four years. Um, you had a very slow migration from paper records. So if you compare it to what the alternative is, which is not all the IT vendors giving us wonderful usable systems, but the healthcare industry sticking with paper because what the heck, we might as well. Are we as patients and as clinicians better off with meaningful use than without it? Yes. And, and the same thing goes with, with the ACOs. The, the regs on patient-centeredness are buried deep within the 400-page PDF that I sort of had to dig through to find, and nobody's paid much attention to them yet, although I hope the regulators are. And, and so down the way, will they be a pain in the rear? Yes. Are they overly bureaucratic? Yes. Will they move medicine in a way so that we are ultimately better off with them than we would have been without them? Well, I, I believe the answer to that is also yes. So there's there's no panacea either from benign neglect or from regulation. Well, um, I, I think, you know, even though uh, I've experienced a little bit of meaningful use, now I don't have to use a meaningful use certified um BHR, but I have in the past. Uh, I I agree that we're we're better off with it than without. Um, and you know, I sort of feel like well, we still clearly need to also be exploring other approaches to sure. um, help patients uh, get what they need from the clinical encounter. Because to a certain extent, you know, I think a lot about uh, how can we create the conditions for clinicians to do their best work. Because I really Absolutely. feel that for that, especially these older patients with all their medical complexity, you know, and their emotional and psychosocial complexity, that they need clinicians who have the mental and emotional energy to step up and do a, a kind of doctoring that is actually very gratifying um, and important, but it takes a certain amount of energy. And if you are being peppered by uh, little regulations or management hassling you for things, then it's you know, it's hard to um, to step up and uh, and do that. Um, so I do think so, so a little bit I, about how if, if if patients and families have the ability to uh, recognize what they want and take their data and leave if they are not getting it from somewhere, then that's you know potentially as powerful as all the top-down regulations, uh, if not more. I, I think you're I think you're absolutely right, and I I love the phrase create the conditions for clinicians to do their best work. I, I, I love that phrase. I, I, I think the, the, the problem is, is that you have doctors, not so much today, but you've had it before when, when high tech passed, you have doctors who genuinely believe that computers are a pain in the rear and provide no quality improvement. You had doctors, I've done a lot of history in demanding medical excellence, who genuinely believed 100 years ago that having a common paper medical record in the hospital was unnecessary because I know everything about my patients in my head and I'm not sharing it. And the problem is, is that sometimes 
the idea of what are the conditions to enable you to do your best work. Some people are progressive and look ahead and say, you know what, we're going through some bumps here, but eventually we're going to be better than ever if we do this. And some people say, you know what, I'm already doing the best possible work that any doctor could do. Leave me alone. That's all that's needed. And that, yeah. that's really, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, the people who say leave me alone are not necessarily bad doctors or not patient-centered. They sincerely believe that what they're doing is fine. They don't need any more measurement. They don't need any more guidance, that everything is perfectly fine. They yeah, happen to be sure. wrong. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And we, we basically, I mean, in a way you could say we have two problems. One is figuring out, you know, what would be um, – a system that you'd set up so that if you took, you know, uh, clinicians who don't have these these bad habits, they'd be able to do their best work. And then the other is right, how you right. bring along all the ones who have right. been indoctrinated in a certain way of doing things. You know, how do you help them move to the new one? Uh, I don't know if we have time, Greg, but I, I've uh, I was wondering if I could ask Michael a question about value. Go all for the, it. You got all point. the uh, all the talk about you know value. We're going to pay for value. And one of the things I've wondered is what would be the right outcomes to measure to capture what I'm doing for patients, to sort of capture this this person-centered quarterbacking that I think the complicated patients the, the, need. The, the, short, the short answer with the music playing is we honestly don't know yet how to do that. But the, some of the things the ACO, those granular measures are doing, start to move us there. So we don't know yet. But some of the things that you saw at Health 2.0 and experience measures, some of the other things that we're doing, we're starting to think about that question seriously. We're moving from the surgeons okay. to the geriatricians. Well, I, I absolutely hate to, to, to end this conversation. Needless to say, we've scratched the surface, and there's a lot more to talk about. Perhaps we could do a part two in the not-too-distant future. But, but let's just... Tee it up this way, Leslie. If not ACOs or their derivative patient-centered medical homes, where else can this living laboratory actually play itself out? I'm going to have to think about that for the next time. Okay. Well, you've been listening to uh, This Week in Accountable Care. We've been talking to Dr. Leslie Kernison and Michael Millinson. Join us next week for another episode. It's great. <laughs> That was when I